Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series into Jonah. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. I want to, we're beginning a brand new sermon series on Jonah this morning. I want to give you, I'm going to try to do a book recommendation every Sunday throughout this series. I don't know how long exactly it'll go for, at least five weeks. And, and we're going to talk a lot about missions and evangelism as we go through this sermon series. And the book I, I brought up here with me today is, it's a classic. It's Evangelism in the Early Church by Michael Green. This is a hefty study for those of you who are more academic, uh, like to read something with depth and think about evangelism as it applied to the church in a very pagan Gentile culture, Greco-Roman world that didn't know Christianity, didn't know the gospel until after Christ. Uh, This is a Don Dunn not too long ago when I first came on, we were talking a lot about evangelism and how to reach the culture and uh, be a part of bringing the gospel to the culture. And Tulsa is asking, do you have any good resources that you go to to think about that? Um, we're kind of back to this time frame of a, of a pagan, godless culture that the early church experienced in the first century. And so this is going to give you a lot of help and thoughts about what the apostles did and how Christ trained the apostles to go out, share the gospel, plant churches, and be a part of a, a lifestyle evangelism. I really do encourage you to read it. If you want to come up and look at my copy, please do so. Again, it's Evangelism in the Early Church by Michael Green, and this is a standard. It's a classic classic book for evangelism and missions that you'll want to look into if, if your heart is for that. And uh, again, I'll have more resources for you as the series progresses. All right. But for the vast majority of, of Western civilization, in general, people believed in a universe that was charged with the grandeur of God. People in general in the West assumed many basic biblical truths. There was an eternal God who existed, who made himself known personally through Christ. There was the existence of heaven and hell. There was a judgment to come. There was moral authority established in the word. There was Christian ethics. Again, it was a, many people have called this an enchanted world because it was a time when if you asked most people, if they understood something about the concept of the biblical God, they would say, absolutely, I do. I understand the truths of Scripture to some extent. The question is, what happened to change that so rapidly to the world in which we are living in today? In the 1950s, a massive cultural shift was happening. After World War II in Europe and in Great Britain, uh, church attendance plummeted overseas. It happened there before it happened in America. In America, after World War II, actually church attendance increased as the, uh, our military men and women came back here. But eventually, as you got towards the end of the 60s, the same thing happened here in America. Church attendance began to, to fall precipitously. Largely, the culture shifted from that which was uh, traditional in its religion and morals and authority structures. We had the, the youth culture of the 60s. We had popular TV in Hollywood that was just gaining more and more momentum in the culture. Mostly, it was the 60s era of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. 
and that took people in this culture steadily away from authority and morality structures that had existed for a long, long time. The most notable shifts were seen in the cultural institutions of our day. It was the educational institutions, it was the marketplace, it was even the government entities that we look to for, for rule and for guidance. Some believe that the, ship, the shift happened coming out of the Enlightenment, 1750 AD. Remember, the Enlightenment was the time of, of rational thinking, of reason. Um, Rene Descartes' famous axiom was, I think, therefore I am, that human beings, what separates us from every other being on the planet is that we are thinking beings, that we can rationalize in our minds, we can understand things. The Enlightenment thinkers took nothing on authority, tradition, or morality. They wanted everybody to think for themselves with their individual mind. And so, so that was definitely part of the slide that we've seen in our postmodern culture today. Other people pointed to romanticism. The romantics on the heels of the Enlightenment said, hey, I appreciate your science, I appreciate your rationality, but there are just some things in this world that can't be proven by science and experimentation that I know for certain are true. You can't prove my feelings. You, you don't understand my emotions, and I know that my emotions are real. And so everything through the romantic came through the lens of their personal experience and their personal emotions. That shifted the culture drastically. Uh, others thought that the shift was just more general because of the economic structures of our day, technology. You saw a change in contraception, birth control. Whatever the, whatever the case might be, the modern and postmodern world is drastically and rapidly changing and different from what it was when my parents grew up and when my grandparents grew up even in this nation. The question for the church was, and still is today, how do you engage a culture that's becoming more lost, more godless, and more anti-Christian by the second? How do we take the gospel in a palatable, attractive way and bring it to the lost people who, who need it so, so much, just as much as we do? One answer has simply been from the church is, is just indifference to the culture. I'm not really going to worry about the culture. I am called to preach the gospel, to give the message out there. I'm going to sow my seeds. Whatever happens in the culture happens, and that's, and that's fine. I'm going to focus on conversion and spiritual growth of individuals. After all, why do we need to change the culture when people are dying and going to hell? Dwight L. Moody is a great representative of this. Once upon a time, said, I look upon this world as a wrecked vessel. God has given me a lifeboat and said, Moody, save all that you can. And there's something good and true and wholesome about that approach. But indifference to the culture will produce an unfortunate spiritual blindness to the power of the culture and its influence. If the church doesn't think critically about the culture, what's good, what's bad, what's ugly, it will find itself in the warp and woof of culture itself, and it will be carried away by its influence. It'll be caught up in it. Jesus told us to be in the world, not of the world. And as such, we need to be students and engage culture a little deeper than this philosophy. Another answer has been the Francis Schaeffer view 
to fully engage the culture at every single level. Your vocation is meant for you to bring your distinctly Christian worldview to the workplace. You bring Christian worldview, Christian values to everything that you do in any place that you go, the arts, the workplace, cultural expression, with biblical insight and influence. Chuck Colson was a huge proponent of this. You've heard of the religious right before in the political spectrum. Engage the culture. For many people, that means conservative policies and philosophies in government. That's the best thing that we can do. In other words, many want us to bring the church house to the White House. That's one of the best ways that we can influence the culture. Others don't quite agree with that, largely indifferent to politics. They argue for the church to embrace the culture as much as possible with freedom, creativity, and again, with engagement. The churches that do this to its fullest extent are called seeker-friendly churches. It's the seeker-friendly church movement. Later on, they were called the emerging church. Today, they're known as progressive Christians, progressive Christianity. The recommendation was not to do church as usual, not to follow the status quo, to rethink and reinvent everything that the church does. Pastors became not so much shepherds caring for the souls of people, but more like CEOs, professional businessmen and women. And today the, the question remains for us, how do we engage a rapidly changing culture to save the lost and influence it with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you found the book of Jonah? Open up to Jonah chapter 1, and this is case study number one from Scripture. I'm going to start a brand new series on the book of Jonah. And for this entire series, what I want to do is, is again, address missions, cultural engagement, evangelism to a culture that doesn't know Jesus Christ. And let me admit to you that when I look out at this culture and, and I see what's going on, I think about my kids growing up in this culture. I think about my different perspectives and experiences compared to my parents and my grandparents. I don't have all the answers what the right thing to do in this culture is. I know there's some clear things that we can take from Scripture. I don't think there's a formula that we can follow. I think the way of the master is, might be as good as any. Jesus witnessed and, and reached different people in different ways with different styles and different techniques depending on how the, the Holy Spirit inclined him to do so. I think there's wisdom in that. What I want to do, though, is, is just talk about Jonah. I want to talk about what he did. I want to talk about what he didn't do. And, uh, and we're, we're going to see a, a prophet here who really didn't want to go to a pretty horrible people group, to a pretty despicable culture. In fact, Jonah was convinced that God didn't love the people that he sent him to. And so why should he even go there in the first place? Um, and he learned some lessons about the character of God along the way. Jonah is, is very unique among the prophets. We're just going to introduce this. I'm going to look at the first three verses today. Jonah is very unique among the prophets. Most of the prophets in the Old Testament, <clears throat> we center on the words that the prophets said. Jonah is different. Jonah is not about the words of a prophet. It's a story about 
a prophet. He appears in one other place in the Old Testament, and it's, it's very interesting where you see him show up. A prophet to one of Israel's worst kings, in 2 Kings, you'll see him come on the scene, Jeroboam II. In 2 Kings 14, 23 through 25, Jonah speaks very favorably to King Jeroboam, and Jeroboam, Derek, was one of those, those kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord. And yet, Jonah's prophecy to Jeroboam was very favorable. It said that God was going to give him rest and peace at that time, and it actually did occur. His words did come true. But he spoke very favorably about Jeroboam when Amos, who ministered at the very same time, a contemporary of Jonah, spoke the exact opposite of the kingdom of Israel, of its rulers, and of the king itself. In Amos 6, 13, and 14, Amos says something completely different than Jonah says. Almost right away, you'd before we get to the words of Jonah, we kind of wonder, is this prophet like all the other prophets? What he did with King Jeroboam II, is that any indicator of what's coming on the pages of Jonah? Maybe, maybe not. The story itself unfolds as a literary masterpiece. There's a very rich, symmetrical structure to this entire book. And one way to look at it is through two main acts— Acts 1 being chapters 1 and 2 of Jonah, Acts 2 being chapter 3 and 4 of Jonah. And each act has about four main parts to it, all right? In Acts, Act 1, chapters 1 and 2, Jonah rejects the Lord's commission. These are the verses we're going to look at today. The sailors submit to the Lord and avert disaster. The Lord prepares a fish to teach Jonah a lesson. A giant fish comes along, snatches Jonah and then Jonah prays, thanking the Lord for the salvation of his life. And it's a very interesting prayer that you read about. It's all poetry in Jonah chapter 2. The rest of the book is narrative. It really stands out. We'll look more deeply into that when we get there. Almost symmetrically, almost a mere structure of Act 1 is Act 2 in Jonah. In the first act, Jonah rejected the Lord's commission. Here, Jonah accepts the Lord's commission first few verses in chapter 3. In the first act, the sailors submitted to the Lord and averted disaster. The second act, the Ninevites submit to the Lord and avert disaster. There's no specific mention of the Ninevites repenting to the Lord. The sailors' repentance is a little stronger in Jonah. Uh, most commentators believe that they were responding to the message of Jonah. So there's, there's some things we'll talk about when we get there. But then when you get to the third and fourth part, of the second act, it's totally different. Remember, in the first act, the Lord prepares a fish to teach Jonah a lesson, and then he prays. In the second act, Jonah prays first, but his prayer is a complaint to the Lord that he saved the Ninevites. You don't understand how he could do that. Then the Lord prepares a plant, a worm, and wind to teach Jonah a lesson. And much like the parable of the prodigal son, remember the elder son? The parable kind of ends on this, like, questionable, okay, what happens with the elder son here? Like, what's the end of the story? Jonah is, is very much the same way. In fact, many people think that uh, when Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son, that he had the book of Jonah in mind when he told it. In the first part of Jonah... Jonah acts kind of like the prodigal son. He runs away from God, runs away from the father. He finally comes back to him. In the second act, 
of Jonah. Jonah is, is kind of left, and he acts more like the elder son. He's just left complaining, and what's going on with Jonah, and what's going on in his heart? So it's a really interesting comparison between the two. But the symmetry between chapters 1 and 3 is obvious. Each chapter begins with a word from the Lord and Jonah's response to it. Each chapter contains a response from the sailors and from the Ninevites. The sharp contrast is between chapters 2 and 4. In chapter 2, Jonah thanks God for his own personal deliverance. In chapter 4, he complains to God about the Ninevites' deliverance. And all throughout this, there's this it's a really ironic invitation to us as readers to compare Jonah to all the other characters in the story. We would expect a prophet of God to be the example par excellence of what godly men do in response to God. But instead, in chapter 1, the sailors look more godly than Jonah. They're the ones that are worshiping the Lord at the end of the chapter. Jonah is the one that's still running away from the Lord. In chapter 3, the Ninevites look more godly than Jonah. They're the ones that repented and came back, and, and Jonah's just angry that they repented, and he's disgusted with God. He's waiting for destruction, all these things to happen. You've got a pagan nation that repents. You've got a powerful Gentile king who humbles himself. You even have an account of cows that are mourning in sackcloth and ashes who are responding to the message of Jonah. And yet this prophet doesn't. What's going on with Jonah? It's, it's, uh, it's very comical. It's, uh, there's a lot of satire in this book as you read it. Um, Jonah ends up being somewhat of a gut check for us, for Israel, for people who know God. Some scholars believe that Jonah's the anti-prophet. Here's what not to do as a prophet of God. Others believe that, that the book is about national pride, about the mission of God, the grace of God. I, I think the, the most powerful and enduring theme in the book of Jonah is God's grace, God of second chances, God of redemption and restoration. The book of Jonah, though, is it's somewhat like Goldilocks, I think God gives us Jonah to, to mess up our hair a little bit. He, lay, he lays in our bed and he messes up all the covers. And then he expects us to get in this unmade, crazy bed and, and look at it. He, he eats our breakfast while it's warm and, and there's nothing left for us and it's cold by the time we get there. God is... God has given us this book, I think, to get to the places of our heart that haven't been given completely to him yet, especially regarding our, our prejudices, our thoughts about ourselves, comparing ourselves to lost people, thinking that we're so much better than others. Uh, God is digging in. He's messing around with us in the places that we need it the most. When someone commits an injustice against you, how eager are you to forgive that person? Read the book of Jonah. You might be a very religious person if when other people get saved, you get angry. Read the book of Jonah. Do you love your enemies the way that God loves your enemies? The way that God loves his enemies? Gut check over and over again. A little bit more on the historicity of Jonah. By tracing the kings of Israel 
we know that Jonah prophesied sometime from the, from the uh, years of about 793 B.C. to 753 B.C. King Jeroboam II had one of the longest rule reigns in all of the kings of Israel in the north. Over 40 years he reigned. And it makes Jonah a contemporary to both Hosea and Amos. So you've already heard me mention Amos once. If you read Hosea or Amos, you're reading at the same time the book of Jonah would have been um, applicable to the people of Israel. Look down at verses 1 and 2. And let me just read. We're just going to cover three verses today. <clears throat> now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But, verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, today is Jaffa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, the first mention of Nineveh, We'll take you back in the Bible to Genesis chapter 10. You remember a guy by the name of Nimrod in Genesis? It's become somewhat of a pun these days. Uh, Nimrod was a city planter. He was a city builder. Uh, he built plenty of cities in Mesopotamia. He finally goes to Assyria, and he builds the city of Nineveh. We know from archaeological evidence that in Nineveh there was a profound influence of pagan worship and idol worship. There's a temple, uh, remnants, remnants of it to the goddess Ishtar, founded around 2300 BC. That's well before the time of Jonah. Several idol, idols representing both Assyrian and Babylonian gods. The god of Nabu, Ashur, and Adad are all found there. Hammurabi, the king of Babylon, referred to the city of Nineveh thousands of years before Jonah. In 1790 B.C., at least a thousand years before Jonah, the town was expanded. What we know about Nineveh is that it was expanded by Tiglath-Pileser in 1100 B.C., and he referred to himself as the king of the world. When you think about Assyria at this time, in biblical context, you've got to think about a world power. This is a powerful, powerful civilization. Getting closer to the time of Jonah, Shalmaneser III made Nineveh a military base. Its outposts and its walls were gigantic. It was built for a defense of the people of Assyria, and it was built to house their soldiers, some of the most ruthless that we've known through world history. That was 859 through 824 B.C. Remember, Jonah prophesies somewhere around 793 to 753 B.C. It won't be until 722 B.C., at least 30 years after Jonah, that the Assyrians will come and take northern Israel. They will take them as slaves, they will capture the city, they will make it their land and their territory instead. Now here's the kicker. Jonah's contemporaries, Hosea and Amos, both, both prophesied that God was going to use Assyria to judge his people Israel, that Assyria was going to be a weapon of God's wrath. And here... God says to Jonah, how could Jonah run the opposite direction from the Lord? Well, through his friends, his contemporary prophets, God is going to use Assyria to judge his people. Why would Jonah want to go and deliver a message of repentance to them? Look down at verse 2. Here's the call. 
Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their evil has come up before me. If you were a prophet in the Old Testament, a faithful prophet, what would you expect Jonah's response to be? Something to the effect of, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Instead, we have something totally different. I want you to look at 1 Kings 17. Here's what Elijah said when God called him to arise and go. Where the Lord came to him, Elijah, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded the widow there to feed you. So he arose and went as the Lord commanded him. Ezekiel chapter 3, 22 and 23, and the hand of the Lord was upon me there. He said to me, arise, go out to the valley, and there I will speak with you. So I arose and I went out to the valley. What do we read in verse 3 instead? Jonah arose and he fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Why does Jonah have such a hard time obeying the voice of the Lord? Nineveh was, again, just an interesting, interesting city. Nineveh, you could, today you can find the remnants of this. It's modern-day Iraq across the river from Mosul, I hope is how you pronounce that river. Um, it was situated on the east bank of the Tigris River. Sennacherib fortified cities and a defense wall there. And here's what he said when he built up the city of Nineveh. He said, the glory of Nineveh will overthrow all our enemies. And this is going to get a little R-rated for you guys. So if you need to do earmuffs on the kids, go ahead. I just want to give you some historical evidence. One of uh, Assyria's military leaders wrote in 883 through 859 BC is the best we can date this. An Assyrian general here speaking. I stormed the mountain peaks and I took them. In the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them with their blood. I dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of their warriors I cut off. I formed them into a pillar over against their city, their young men, their maidens. I burned in the fire. About 15 years after Sennacherib or um, 722 BC, the conquest of northern Israel, Sennacherib wrote this. I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and their entrails run down upon the wide earth. Their hands I cut off. Nahum was a prophet who called Nineveh a city of blood, a city known for their cruelty. Chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 19 in Nahum. Why does Jonah not want to go to the city? The answer is, is pretty obvious. This was a pagan, ruthless, godless people group and city. I want you to note a couple things about the text, though. The command, chapter 1, verse 2, is two commands, arise and go. There's no coordinating conjunction between those two things in Hebrew. You just read, arise, go. Two commands right next to each other. They appear next to each other without any coordinating conjunction, usually to express urgency. Some of your translations will say, go immediately, get up, go at once to Nineveh. The same word arise is repeated in verse 3. Arise and go 
was the Lord's command. Verse 3, Jonah arose. Everything, every, everybody's expecting now, and he went as the Lord commanded him, but fled is used after it instead. The narrator is, is setting us up. He wants us to be shocked by the response of Jonah. Hang on a second. Did I just read that right? He went and he fled instead of, instead of going as the Lord commanded to him. It's the exact opposite. And actually, there's, there's one more use of arise in Jonah chapter 1. Look down at verse 6. It doesn't come from the mouth of God. It doesn't come from a description of the narrator speaking of Jonah. It comes from the mouth of the captain of the sailors on the ship. Verse 6, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper, speaking to Jonah? Arise. Call out to your God. I wonder what Jonah was thinking when he heard that word from the captain. I wonder if there's something inside of him that said, you know what, I distinctly remember hearing that from God. Note how many times you see the direction down in these few verses. Jonah went down to Joppa. Verse 3, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paired the fare, went down into it in the boat. Verse 5 says Jonah went down to the inner parts of the ship, the third mention of going down. Later on, the sailors will throw Jonah into the sea. And guess what? He'll go from, he'll go from there, down to the depths of the sea. Jonah is just this prophet. Not only is he going away from the Lord's presence, but he keeps going down and down and down, farther and farther and farther. Jonah not only goes in the opposite direction, but he's getting lower spiritually, personally, physically, and geographically. Again, I don't want to cover too much uh, more content in Jonah, just introduce the book today, but I do want to talk just about a few things about the prophet who tries to run from the grace of God. Is there a time this week, think back into your life, when you tried to run away from God? Maybe not in your location, maybe much more in your situation. Was there a time when you convinced yourself that your way was better than God's way? Was there a moment at all, any time during this week, when you thought that you could escape the presence of God? Is there some place in your life that you have not given over completely to God? Is there, are you the, the Christian who says, God, you can take all of this and I will give this part of my life to you, but this, this one thing, that's for me? Are you one who finds yourself running away from the gracious presence of God? I'll give you just a, a few points, think about three quick verses here in Jonah. Number one, God's call is not always comfortable or convenient, but it will take courage. God's call is not always comfortable or convenient, whether it's your spiritual life, whether it's somebody he wants you to talk to, whether it's leading your family, but it will take loads of courage. God called Jonah to go to a place where he didn't want to go, to a people he didn't want to preach to. And he made a massive mistake thinking that his calling was for himself and from himself. God's calling is not for you. It's for God. 
and it's for his glory. It's not from you either. That's why it's God's calling. It's sourced in him, not in you. One author puts it this way, God calls us, we don't call ourselves. We don't choose our callings in life. We are called to them. When God called Abraham to go, take what you have and go to a land that I will show you. He didn't tell him where he was going to go. He didn't tell him how long he was going to go for. He didn't tell him anything of the such. He just said, get up and go. And Abraham listened and obeyed him. God's calling is not always comfortable or convenient. The grace of God is a powerful, powerful thing, but it will often call us to places we don't want to go, to people we don't want to go to. Number two, the journey away from God is always downward and it is always costly. Any journey away from God is always downward and it is always costly. Did you notice twice in the text, verse 3, it said that Jonah went from the presence of the Lord? Jonah went from the presence of the Lord. This is very, it's very satirical. This is very comical. Of all of the people in the Old Testament, who should know God the best? The priests and the prophets, probably? Jonah, do you really think that you're going to run away from the presence of the Lord by going somewhere? geographically different than where he has called you to? Regardless if your path takes you up financially or up successfully, running away from God is a journey that is down spiritually. And it will eventually eat your life away. You might not recognize it, realize it, or rationalize that right away. It might think, you might think it is the better path. But it will always take you downward, and it will always take you further away from God. In addition to running away from God, it will always cost you more in the long run. And if you don't believe me on this point, talk to somebody that's over the age of 50. Running away from God will always cost you more in the long run. Did you notice what Jonah did as he boarded the ship to Tarshish? He paid the fare. He paid for it. When we run away from God, we pay for it. Sometimes it's not a financial impact on us. Sometimes it's relational. Sometimes it's spiritual. Sometimes it's tough, tough costs to bear. He decided to run, and he discovered that there was a payment to that. But when we run to God, it's a different story. He carries the freight. When we run to God and when we unload our burdens on him, he pays the freight. The grace of God is deep and it is magnificent and it is absolutely free to those who will simply call out to Jesus, repent, and come to him. Number three, as believers, we cannot escape God's call to mission. Uh, One person was telling me this morning that Jonah was the first prophet of God who is called to foreign missions in many ways, if you think about the minor prophets in that context. As believers, we cannot escape God's call to mission. Believers cannot escape God's call to missions. There are two missions in Jonah chapter 1. There's the mission of Jonah, and there's the mission of God. Jonah's mission was all about self-preservation and self-serving. 
God's mission was all about revealing himself to deliver those with his magnificent grace who did not deserve it and never could earn it. Paul exhorted Timothy in the New Testament to do the work of an evangelist. That is all of our responsibilities, to be ready in season and out of season. There's only two times that you need to be ready to bring the gospel to the lost people, in season and out of season. Just two times. It's all good. First Peter tells us to always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in within us through Christ, yet with gentleness, right? Last thing I want to say. Jesus is the anti-Jonah. Jesus was also given a mission from God. The Father called out to the Son, Arise and go. I want you to leave all the glories that you have with me. I'm sending you to a godless, pagan, worthless people. They will sin against you. They will curse you to your face. They will spit in your face. They will beat you for no reason. I want you to go to them, and I want you to show them the love of Christ. The Son of God knew the mission better than anybody else. Unlike Jonah, he didn't run the opposite direction. He emptied himself willingly of all the, the things that he had with the Father. He became a servant. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Aren't you glad that we serve a Savior who didn't run from the mission? Aren't you glad that we have Jesus running toward us, not away from us? Aren't you glad that when he looked into your life, into my life, and he knew that was there, he still chose to come to us and to give his life for our sins? Our call as gospel-believing Christians is to be on mission with God, to look for those opportunities, to not run the opposite way, but to go where God has called us. And he's, here's where he's called you and I, to Tulsa, Oklahoma to the people around us, to our family members, to our coworkers, to be the love of Christ to them. And when we have those opportunities to speak the truth of the gospel plainly and clearly and let them deal with it through the Holy Spirit. God didn't call you to be successful. He called you to be faithful to deliver that message as we live a life that was exemplified by the life of Christ. It might cost you. You might sacrifice to be on mission with God, but remember the God who sacrificed everything for you as you go and sacrifice some things for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, again, we just thank you. I want to, <clears throat> again, as we uh, uh, turn the page in our seasons here at TBC and get ready for school, Lord, there is a mission field right in front of us with students, our kids, our families. Um, Help us to be on mission with you in those areas. And again, just be with our students as they get ready to head back to school and in a very real, um, just a, a joyful way. Help them to experience your presence this year in new and exciting ways that they haven't before. God, as we continue to look through the book of Jonah, we are so thankful for Christ We pray that we would follow his lead in responding to the mission. Pray that we would learn from Jonah. And I pray that we would all look inside of our own hearts 
as we read through this book in the next several weeks to those areas that we haven't given over to you yet and follow the mission that you have called us to. Help us to realize that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that sin is sin. You are not a respecter of persons. You redeem every sin, all sin, for your glory through your son Jesus. Help us to keep that in perspective when we think about the people and the culture that you have called us to. Father, I pray that TBC would be a beacon of light and that we would be encouraged like never before to reach the lost in the city of Tulsa. Give us a heart to do so through schools, through our workplaces. Help this church to be just a, just a place of respite and healing for those who desperately, desperately need you. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.